0: Okay, you can be opening up your uh, Bibles to the Book of John. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know we've been studying the Gospel of John, and we've talked a little bit about uh, how it's a very unique Gospel compared to the other three. Of course, uh, the other three we call the Synoptic Gospels because they are very similar, and John kind of has his own style. It's very, very different uh, Gospel. He does talk about he does. Uh, Uh, write about some similar things that you see in the other Gospels, of course. Of course, we're talking about the life of Jesus, right? So there's going to be some similar things, but then he does mention many other things. And remember, why did John write the Gospel? Well, he tells us. We turn over to John 20, chapter 20, and look at verse 30. He said, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What a wonderful statement. We can, we can have life in the name of Jesus Christ, who John writes about. That's the reason for writing this gospel, that you may have life in his name. You, should, you shall be saved. Remember, we can't save ourselves, right? We have no hope without Jesus Christ, without his uh, coming and, and giving up his life, sacrificing himself uh, for us, for our sins, we have no hope. So, what a wonderful statement that is. Last week we talked about, I'm not getting kind of an echo going here, is that okay? Okay. Last week we talked about the first miracle, right? Remember that? We talked about uh, Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, Cana of Galilee, and we talked a little bit about the first disciples seeing this uh, for the first time, obviously. Of course, the week before that, we talked about the first disciples that, were, that Jesus recruited, uh, yeah, Andrew and, and Peter and uh, Philip and Bartholomew or Nathaniel. And we are seeing them starting to grow a little bit, right? They say at the beginning, they recognize Jesus to be the Messiah, the promised one, the one that was prophesied about from old. And they say, this is him. And then we see a miracle performed, right? A miracle that's going to strengthen their faith, validate those statements that they are saying, that this is the Christ, right? This is the Messiah. And even though these things occur, we know at the end, there was still some doubt, right? There were still some things that they weren't sure about. Remember Peter? Denied Christ, right? Before the cock crowed three times, just as Jesus had told him he would. So, Even though they're seeing the signs, they're seeing these things happen, um, there's still a little bit of doubt in their mind, right? There's still a little wondering about that as they're going through his ministry. They were able to see Jesus' power and his magnificence through these signs, uh, and they were able to grow spiritually. But, you know, we think of Jesus as being a, uh, you know, it's, it's common to think of him as being a gentle peaceful man right and 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 we should he he claims to be turn over to matthew chapter 11 let's read a couple verses from that book matthew chapter 11 and beginning in verse 25 at that time jesus in answer said i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes even so father for so it seemed good in your sight all things have been delivered to me by the Father, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is easy is like stay there in matthew and we'll look at another verse so jesus says i i am easy, I'm easy. Lay, lay your burdens upon me right my yoke is easy that's another wonderful statement isn't it that's something else that can give us so much confidence so much hope right uh, it, it should it should ease your mind it should take your worries away right we've heard sermons right that we shouldn't be worrying right of course that's a lot easier preached about or said than it is to do, isn't it? We have loved ones. We have friends and loved ones that hurt or get sick and and things happen in this world that are not good. It makes it hard not to worry a little bit, right? Jesus said, lay your burdens on me. I'll take them. My yoke is easy. He is gentle and lowly in heart. Look over at uh, chapter 19 there in Matthew. Let's read a couple verses from that one. That chapter. 19... Uh, Beginning in verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. People felt comfortable bringing their children to Jesus, right? They saw something in him about his character, about his gentleness, kindness, whatever you want to call it that they were willing to bring their children to him knowing that he would show favor to them, show love to them, show uh, a preference toward the children. But, did you know, and you should know, there was an occasion or two where Jesus didn't seem to be so gentle, right? He he showed a little righteous indignation. I love saying that two-word phrase, righteous indignation. It sounds powerful, doesn't it? Sounds cool to say. Such is when he visited Jerusalem during the Passover at the beginning of his ministry. And you remember what he did? He drove the money changers and the merchandisers out of the temple. Yep, there was that occasion. Let's turn over to John chapter 2 and let's read about that. John chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. Follow along with me. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured, poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. All right. Well, what prompted this outburst of anger? Uh, what gave Jesus reason? What gave him authority? to do this what can we learn for ourselves about this right well all right let's uh let's think about that a minute the lord's rebuke reveals something right about himself reveals something about the fact that there can be a time for righteous indignation you might say i hate to use the word anger because anger seems to have such negative connotations right uh, when, when someone's angry, it always seems to be for the wrong reason or whatever. But, Jesus' anger could be something that's coming from something that's righteous. It can come out because of something that's needed to be said. It can come out in opposition to something that's wrong. Right? So there, there can be a time for an anger that's control, of course, but an anger that needs to be Uh, displayed to show something is wrong, to be rebuked, to rebuke something. The sellers of oxen and sheep, along with the money changers, had turned the temple into a house of merchandise. Now this is the great temple, right? The temple where, among the Israelites, God resided, right? We have, I think, actually, Kyle was describing something just recently, or maybe it was Ben, I'm not sure which one. I think it was Ben in the Hebrews class, right? Talking about the temple, yeah. And how there was a, the outer court, right? And you had even sections out there. You had the court of the Gentiles outside. And then you had a court where the women could be and then the men. And then the temple where only the priests could go. And finally the most holy place where only the high priest could go one time a year, right? On the Day of Atonement. And that was where the mercy seat was. That's where God symbolically resided or lived with his people, right? So, in that sense, the temple was a most holy place, a very holy place, right? Now, God didn't physically reside there, but in spirit and in, and in truth, he was there. He was with his people, right? So, you think of this house being turned into a house of merchandise. It was like the, the Mall of Georgia, right? They're selling their sheep and oxen for sacrifices and other things right not good turn over to matthew 21 and let's read what matthew wrote about this particular instance matthew 21 and let's look at verse 12 21 12 then jesus went into the temple of god and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the sheep and the seats of those who sold doves And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. In other words, not only was this a house of merchandise, but there's something going on there that's wrong, right? I don't know if that's because they're gouging the people because it's a Passover perhaps. I mean, what usually happens when there's a big event, right? Prices go up, don't they? People get gouged a little bit. Could have been that going on, probably is. Some things are happening there that just aren't right as well, right? That's because men are doing this, or men are going to do things in accordance to their own well-being, their own personal gain, right? Things are going to happen because that's the way they want it to happen. Well, the Lord is angered uh, because people are becoming enriched through the use of perhaps what you might call religion, right? The Lord's angered over that. People shouldn't be getting rich on people's religious activity or their beliefs and so forth, right? Does that happen today? It does, doesn't it? All you gotta do is turn on the TV, right? And look at some of the religious channels that you'll see on your TV some of the faith healers or faith teachers that say all you gotta do is believe and you'll have wealth untold. And of course those guys live out in the really rich section of town, right? Driving their big old Mercedes and Rolls Royces or whatever you want to call it. They're being enriched because of religion, right? Happens today. In fact, I wouldn't want to say this but could it be that some even here, even that come here might be coming here for their own personal gain. Could that be happening in this congregation? Surely not. But it's a possibility, right? Think of a a salesman who needs a network of people to go out and and sell to, right? You might see a big congregation as a great networking opportunity, right? Yeah. Someone who could take advantage of his relationships with his brethren to further his business. Perhaps a home selling business. Does anybody ever come to you at church and ask you, hey, can you, I got some stuff I need to sell here. Want to help me out? Yeah, (laughs) that's happened to me. My kids have probably done it too. But that can happen, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Girl Scout cookies, yeah. Ball stuff, yeah, all that happens, right? And, 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 you know, that's... The kids aren't doing that for personal gain. They're, they're being doing it for their teams and so forth. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But as adults, you could see something with your business, right? That could happen. People might have an ulterior motive, wanting to further their financial status or their business. Well, <clears throat> what is the Lord's temple today? All right, back. At this time, the temple still existed. The Jews or Israelites could see that, right? They knew that was the house of God. They had a place where they could focus on and say, this is the house of God, right? And today, you'll hear people saying, well, the church is the house of God, or, the, or the, somebody might say the building there, that's the house of God, but that's not really the case, is it? Individual. Yeah, Jim says individual. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians and just read about that a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's just, uh, let's just begin 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1. And, and the context of this passage is, is the division among the, 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 the brethren in, in Corinth at the time. And, and Paul is writing to rebuke some of that. So let's, let's begin in verse 1. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are are, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers to whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, you are God's building. Hmm. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work for what, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. All right, as Jim says, the temple today is what? The brethren, right? The church, the people. It's not the building. It's funny how he contrasts a building made with wood and buildings made with eternal materials is what's going to last in the end because the fire is going to burn up the material that's bad that's made with wood, right? So we have today the temple in us, in the church, right? Ephesians uh, 2, he talks about the church universal. And if you look over in 1 Corinthians 6, about verse 19, he talks about that temple being within us, that we are the house of the temple. So you can say it's us, the church, together. That's the temple of God today, right? That's what we would refer to in modern times to be where God resides. Well, the Lord has, he's he's ordained that those who preach the gospel be supported, right? He has. Turn over to 1 Corinthians there on chapter 9, if you're not there. And let's just read that. Chapter 9, and let's start in verse, uh, verse 12. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister to the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar even so the lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel in other words those who are preaching should be supported for it that's valid that's a good thing we have some ministers in this congregation we support them they are here to minister to this congregation They have certain gifts endowed by God, and they are here to serve and use those gifts in the kingdom in a way that's edifying to us and edifying to this community uh, around us. So there is nothing wrong with paying a preacher. Nothing wrong, right? But it is something wrong when you have a preacher that sees his job as something to get rich because of. There's something wrong with that, right? All right, well, why did Jesus do what he did? The disciples said something there in verse 17. And let's go back over there and just read that real quickly. John 2, 17. They said, <clears throat> Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Well, what is that? That's a statement from Psalm 69. Let's just turn over to Psalm 69 and see what's going on there. All right. Psalm 69, and this is a psalm of David. And David's going to be saying some things in this psalm about, about himself, but it's also a, uh, a, messianic, a messianic psalm. It's referring to Christ, and it is proved by the fact that the disciples remember that. Beginning in verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. There are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have been, I've stolen nothing... I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because of your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now he goes on, in, goes on to another rest of that uh, psalm lamenting for himself, but also this is a prophecy of the Christ, right? We validate that by the fact that disciples remember that, saying Jesus had zeal for his house. His great zeal for his, house, his father's house did what? It moved him to action, didn't it? It caused him to do something. He didn't just let it go. He didn't just let it stand. Sure there are things that are going to go on in this world that we can see, right? We can see things happening that aren't good. And a lot of times, you just have to let it go. But there are certain times when something needs to be said, isn't there? And in this case, it was the uh, merchandising, the, the changing of the temple to a house of merchandise rather than a house of prayer. That was enough to make Jesus act. act. He had a zeal for his father's house. 1 Timothy 3, and I'm going to go read it, but it talks about the house of God, the house of the the father's house is the church, and we should have a great zeal for that church, that house, that temple. One of the purposes of the church is what? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, and let's see what that says. Paul has a couple things to say about that. Chapter 3, verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church has a purpose. To make known the great gospel to the principalities and powers, right? In the heavenly places. Now, that, that reference is, is, is not just to, I mean, you might say the principalities of the world, but it's also the spiritual world, right? The heavenly places. Those who need to know what happened here. Well, the church today can become something a little different than that, right? The church today can become what you might call I hate to say it, but you know, a social club, right? I mean, I, I don't think this congregation has done that, but there are people that go to church today, uh, not only to enrich themselves, but because that's where all their buddies are, right? And you can kind of see that in people's lives. That, you know, we, we can see what people do. What, we, we know what they're like. Some say they'll go to church to hang out with their friends. <coughs> The actions we take may not be able to, may, may not be something that Jesus did, right? Uh, Jesus took a whip of cords. Could we do that? Could we manufacture a whip of cords and head to the temple ourselves? Well, probably not. Probably be, get arrested. Probably would not be a good thing or a result of that. So there's a difference in there, than what we might be able to do, than what Jesus can do. Why was Jesus able to do that? In fact, he's asked the question, is he not? He said, by what authority? What makes you the person to go through the temple and clean it out? Who said you could do this? Why are you able to do this? Jesus says what? Let's look back at John, and let's look back at uh, verse 19 there, beginning of verse 19, chapter 2. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You remember, I've said many times in here, the disciples think this is the Messiah, right? They believe this is Messiah. They're seeing signs and wonders that if I saw those signs, I'd know it. I mean, there'd be no doubt in my mind, or so I think. But yet, even until he died, they weren't quite sure. In fact, that death kind of said, well, wait a minute. I thought he was going to be the one who was going to stay here and make Israel a great nation again. Establish a kingdom. And he died. But three days later, something happened, right? It was that resurrection. That's the kicker. The resurrection, right? Jesus proved who he was through the signs and wonders, through his ability to speak boldly, through his ability to speak as one with authority, but ultimately because of what? He was raised from the dead. And that's what he's saying here. He says... I can do this because I will be raised up in three days. I can do this. I have the authority. Turn over to John chapter 10 real quick, and let's look at what he says there. Verse uh, 17. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. I'm here to sacrifice myself. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. He's received the command, he's given the authority. He is here to sacrifice himself and then raise it up again. Turn over to Romans, real quick, chapter 1. Now let's just see what is said right there verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's it. That's how he proved it. He proved it right there, as if he hadn't already. The resurrection did it, folks. That's the big difference. So he's been given the authority to exercise such judgment as cleansing the temple, even with a whip of cords. That sounds nasty, don't it? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on these days with the strife in our nation, police, There's some brutality stuff going on. And it causes an uproar, doesn't it? When you hear something about somebody being rough with someone else, it causes an uproar. Now, I don't know if Jesus was whipping the people or if he was just swinging that cord. I don't know. But he says here, I have the right to do it because I am the one in authority. That's interesting, isn't it? It's amazing to think about that. <clears throat> Turn over to John chapter 5. I want to just read a couple things about that real quick. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Did you hear that? Has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority To execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Jesus has the authority. He can do this. He will raise Himself up. We can't. We can't. We don't have that authority. We don't have the ability to go and cleanse a temple with a whip of cords. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have a zeal for the temple or His house, which is the church today, right? It doesn't mean we can't have a zeal for that. And if something is wrong, that doesn't mean we can't stand up and say something about it, right? Sure, we may suffer some consequences from that, but if we have that zeal for the house of the Father that Jesus had, it should be a motivating factor, shouldn't it? It should be something that we are willing to do, even to the point of being persecuted over it. And by the way, that could happen. We're not promised that it's not going to happen. Jesus is able to do this, and one of the reasons, too, is because Jesus knows man's heart. We can't know another man's heart. Oh, sure, we can think we do. We can see by their actions that they may have something wrong in their heart, in their mind, but really and truly, we can't know another man's heart. The Lord knew all men, their nature disposition, affections, their designs. Much more probably than men even know themselves. Have you ever done something and then afterwards think, why in the world did I do that? Yeah. (laughs) I, I can remember things I did 20, 30 years ago, and every once in a while it'll pop up in my head and I just cringe because of it. Thinking about it again. And you think, that's not me. Why did I do that? God knows your heart better than you do yourself. He knows his crafty enemies and all their secret projects. He knows what his enemies are up to, right? We don't. We may think we do, but we don't. He knows his false friends and their characteristics. Remember, he knew about Judas, right? He knew about Judas. He knew his heart. For he betrayed him. He knows who are truly his and their uprightness, and he knows their weaknesses. Well, since we can't really know the hearts of men, we must be careful. We're unable to always know the motives of others, right? Turn over to 2 Timothy, and let's read a couple things from that a letter. 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> Uh, Verse, uh, let's turn to verse 24. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. We have to approach others with humility. We have to be gentle. We don't know men's hearts. We can't raise ourselves from the dead. We don't have the authority that Jesus had. We have to be careful. Doesn't mean we don't stand up for the gospel, for the truth. Doesn't mean we don't say something to someone who needs to hear it. Just as Paul said there, they may may, uh, escape the snare of the devil. Because of it, and that's what we're supposed to do. But we do have to live in this world, and we have to be careful. We must approach brethren overtaken in fault with gentleness. Well, <clears throat> when we're contending for the faith, which is which is what we should be doing—solemn duty. That's a solemn duty as every Christian. We should be contending for the faith. There's some that will use this example of Jesus cleansing the temple to justify their righteous indignation, right? Their anger, their anger towards others who might be teaching an error. But is that the right way to appeal to this example? Is that the right way to use this example of Jesus? We have to be careful. Would we be justified in using a whip of cords against someone because they're teaching error? Well, of course you know the answer to that. But it's not necessarily something physical, right? We've got to be careful what we say. We've got to think about it before we open our mouths. <clears throat> Is it right to appeal to this example in every situation? Can we appeal to every example of Jesus? Sometimes we've got to think about what we say. The immediate context of this offers reason to answer carefully. Jesus possessed that unlimited authority to judge men. And remember, we've talked about it many times. We, in the church, are in the kingdom of heaven. Sure, we're still in this world. Sure, we're still on the earth. But we are part of the kingdom of heaven. And who's at the head of the church? Who is reigning in his kingdom now? Jesus Christ. He sat down at the right hand of God and given all authority in heaven and on earth. We have to remember that. Our humility has to continue. We have to be careful when we say things. Now, I'm not saying anybody in here is going out and pounding people over the head, you know. Repent! And that's not necessarily the best way to handle things, although there's probably a time for saying you need to repent, right? Have you driven up uh, Old Swanee Road recently toward uh, Satellite? and you come down the hill there and there's some signs right there. Somebody's placed in the yard and says, repent and obey Jesus. And it's got a couple of scriptures on it. You know, you know like the old days when you drive down the old country road and you see all the signs pointing to the, to the drug store or whatever it was up there. Kind of reminds you of that. And, and, and that's okay. But there's times for something like that and there's not. And you gotta be careful about dealing with that. There are times for righteous indignation though. The truth needs to be shared. The the light needs to shine on the truth, not the darkness. I will say the Lord doing this gives us an example that shows that anger channeled in the right way is good. I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? I know it sounds weird to say anger can never be good, but there's a time for it. Have you ever been angry with your kids? Were you righteous in being angry with your children? I know your moms would say, of course I was. Especially when they were being disrespectful, right? Yeah, of course they were. You want your child to be raised up in a way that's honoring a people, kind, gentle, just like the Lord was. And so there's a time when anger is something that needs to be used. Not not overbearing, not, not with a whip of cords, But in the right way we have to be careful though to avoid that righteous indignation that becomes self-righteous indignation we're not looking to be self-righteous we're not looking to do things to honor ourselves or do things to puff us up or to have us gain personally it's to honor him it's always to honor him respect him be an example for the truth, shine a light on the world that needs to know his love for us. And man, what a wonderful love it is that he came, died for us, was raised again, and gives us the hope of eternal life. I hope you're enjoying this study. The Gospel of John's a wonderful gospel. I love the way John writes. It's very stylistic. And I, we, we're going to be continuing for a few more weeks and months. And I hope you'll stay with us. Our time is up. Thanks for being here.